But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from stars in their glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, the man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of the eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed." For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We're going to spend some time reflecting on this text over the next little while. I remember as a child getting a present from my grandparents. It was a Canada savings bond for $100. Perhaps you remember these if you're a little bit older. They've since been discontinued because I tried to look them up this week. But basically, the idea behind a Canada savings bond is that you'd buy the bond for $100. It was a kind of investment. And if you hung on to it for a certain amount of time, it was seven years or 10 years or something like that, you would get $200 at the end. Basically, what's happening is the government was guaranteeing a rate of return on the investment. Now, if you took it out early after five years or something, you'd get uh, some percentage of the total, but not the whole thing. But the principle is pretty simple. My grandparents gave me the bond, and what it symbolized was the hope of a future reality. I knew that by holding on to this bond for seven years or whatever, there was a day coming when its value would be realized, and I would be rich, you know, or about as rich as like a nine-year-old can imagine. $200 is almost unbelievable. 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ has set in motion a chain of events that will lead, according to 1 Corinthians, to the resurrection of all who believe in him. Paul is saying here in this passage that each of us will have our own Easter day. You will have yours if you believe in him when we will rise from whatever grave we've been laid in to be remade in the new heavens and new earth. He's saying because Jesus rose, because Easter happened, uh, so too will we. Because he lives, so will we. Now what will that life be like? What will it be on your Easter day? What will, what will we be like? This is what Paul is answering in the second half of 1 Corinthians 15. He tells us some of the things. And I, and I think this is uh, a fun way for us to understand what Jesus was like after he was resurrected. I think sometimes on Easter Sunday we get stuck on the empty tomb like we know he came out. But 1 Corinthians 15 helps us understand who Jesus would have been in the days that followed. Because if he was sort of the first fruits and we are like him, then by understanding ourselves, we'll understand him in turn. So what Paul is doing is he's giving us a kind of savings bond. He's giving us something that's going to be valuable in the present, but he says it's also going to be redeemable for greater value in the future. The hope of the future is going to have impacts on the present. But I have four parts to today's message. The first three have to do with our Easter day, and the fourth having to to speak about what, is, what does the resurrection mean for the here and now. But here are the four parts if you want to follow along. First, we'll talk about all these creation examples. He gives all these examples from creation. And then secondly, he talks about the four transformations. You, you were this, then you're going to be that. And then he's going to talk about third, the sudden change, kind of the when it takes place. And fourth is what I'm calling the energy of the resurrection. Now we enter this text in the middle of an extended argument by Paul about the nature of the resurrection of Jesus. He told us in the first part the, the, the resurrection is an essential part of the gospel. It's something you must believe if you want to be a Christian. He, he shows us how if you disbelieve the resurrection, it leads to an emptying out of Christianity. There's not anything left if you abandon this doctrine. And he of course told us that the resurrection of Jesus is a proof, a foretaste of our own resurrection. He's the first sample, Jesus is, of the coming harvest. His resurrection life teaches us of our own. So basically what's happening is a clever skeptic comes along and asks a question that Paul asks in verse 25. He says, well, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? This person wants to know. When people are raised, okay, granting there is a resurrection, what are they going to be like? Are they going to be spirits? Are they going to be zombies? Are, like, what, what, what's it going to be like? What kind of bodies are we going to have? which is a natural question. I think if you're thinking through it philologically, it makes sense. Ancient people, modern people, we know when you put a body in the ground, it decomposes. Even the bones eventually turn to dust. Not to mention all the people who die at sea or have their bodies burned or in whatever way their, the, the body, their physical body was destroyed. Like if all those people are resurrected, like what's the body going to be like? We clearly can't rely on whatever comes out of the ground. So I kind of like this skeptic. It's kind of a natural question, I think. But by the way Paul answers him or her in verse 36, calling them foolish, it's clear the question is not being asked by a sincere inquirer, but it more has the character of a heckler. They're asking the question not because they're interested in the answer, but because they think, oh, this is going to make that Paul guy look dumb. He's not going to know how to answer this. When the Bible says someone's a fool or says they're foolish, it doesn't mean they're stupid. It doesn't mean that they have a low intellect or something like that. It just means they are a person who considers the universe as if God were not in it. 
To be foolish in the Bible's world just means a refusal to acknowledge God. And if this is a Christian asking the question, we aren't told. But if it is a Christian, all the more reason to Paul say, you're acting like a fool. You're being foolish. But Paul answers their question about what the bodies of the resurrected will be like by pointing to three examples from creation. First, he says, if you look at verse 37, he said, you should think about death and resurrection like a seed and what grows from a seed. Now, we're at spring season uh, here. Farmers are tilling fields, getting ready to plant spring crops. You know, backyard gardeners, you're probably all getting ready to do the same. Have you ever noticed that seeds are kind of underwhelming? Like you open the packet and it's all bright and colorful on the outside and then inside it's like a little dot, like a little dark thing or a little light thing and you place it trustingly into the soil when they could have put anything in that bag and you wouldn't have known the difference. But of course it's miraculous then when when that little dot, that little thing turns into a bean plant or turns into a towering sunflower plant. I think if you were an alien coming to earth and you didn't know about seeds and plants, you would think there's no correlation between what a seed is and what grows from a seed. Paul said this is how the world works. And then he says, our bodies, what we have right now is the seed. We're bare kernels, he says in verse 37, like little, little popcorn kernels or something. And when that seed goes into the ground and dies, what grows from it, is obviously going to be much different than what's planted. If you can understand that a seed will become something, you know, wildly different when it grows, Paul says, death to resurrection is similar. Just because you plant a human body does not mean that's what you're going to get back afterwards. You're not going to get a a seed back, you're going to get a plant. Secondly, he says in verse 39, he says, think of the death to resurrection like the different kinds of creatures that exist. You know, fish, not the same as birds. Um, Humans, not the same as land animals, you know, tigers or whatever. There are different kinds of creatures and there are different kinds of flesh. Tigers, they have fur, fish, scales, birds, feathers, you know, so on, you know, us, skin. Uh, Paul offers us this kind of rudimentary taxonomy, like you'd learn in biology class, that we've separated the world into domains and then kingdoms and then, you know, phylum or species or class or, you know, all, all the way down. We've divided it all up And we already know that the flesh of one phylum or one class, it differs from another. The natural world, it's not one kind of creature, it's all kinds of creatures. And by analogy, he means resurrection flesh, resurrection sort of stuff will be different from human flesh. Probably not going to have the same cells or or protein structures or whatever. Paul's telling them, You have to get past the idea that when we are raised, we'll just kind of have our our regular old bodies back. He says, no, 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 the the flesh, it's going to be of a different kind. Just like there are different kinds of animals, so you will change into something different on your Easter day. And third, he says, death to resurrection is like the different kind of glory in celestial objects. See, they knew, according to verse 40, that things of earth differed from the things of the skies, that, that moon differed from sun and, and planets uh, from stars and even stars between themselves are different. They each have their own kind of glory and radiance, but it's not the same. So too the transition from death to resurrection will be a difference in kind. You will move on to a different kind of glory. You won't be the same. Now if we take Paul's three metaphors, these three analogies, what kind of overall principles do we draw? What do these metaphors mean? Well, first thing I think it means is continuation of identity. 
See, in each case here, there's a change of form, a change of flesh, a change of kind, a change of glory, but there's never any mention of a change of identity. Paul actually assumes a continuation of identity. If you have an acorn that produces an oak tree, of course they're not the same, but they have the same base identity. And also, if you think of Jesus' resurrected body, when he came back, the disciples both knew him and didn't know him. At times they recognized him, at other times they didn't. His body did some of the same things. Scriptures tell us he, he ate and talked and, and built campfires, he also, but he also appeared and disappeared. He also you know, walked through walls. Yet we know because he told us and because he proved it, it was still him. It was not a different Jesus. It was the same Jesus who died on the cross. There was a continuation of identity even as the form changed. So too, in the same way, we will be the same but different. We will be a glorified, a perfected version of ourselves on our Easter day. Yet still recognizable. I think we will know each other just as Jesus' disciples knew him but also be different. But that leads to our second principle, which is that our resurrection bodies will be more glorious. This comes from the seed analogy, but also from the example of Jesus. But think of it. Which is greater and more glorious, the seed or the plant it produces? The acorn or the oak tree? Like, each has its own glory, but the towering oak, the, the productive bean plant, it's, it's greater, it's more wondrous than the seed that produced it. Jesus on earth, he was limited by time and by space. Yet he seems very unlimited in his resurrected self. I mean, he teleports at one point. Like he, he leaves one place and he immediately appears a number of kilometers away. I've already mentioned the appearing, the disappearing, walking through walls. Yet he still, you know, eats, walks, talks. He gives Mary a hug at one point. It seems that the resurrected body takes what's best about this life and adds glories to it. We don't know what those glories will be exactly. But if you are a seed right now, you can very well know that the plant version of yourself will be barely imaginable. Paul is basically telling us, don't worry about the body to come. Don't worry about it because God has shown us in creation it will be better and more glorious and more wondrous than anything you have now. You're not going to need to worry about missing out. And then he goes on in the same vein to discuss the four transformations of the body. So as we change to a different kind of glory, as we take on a different kind of flesh, well, what does that mean? Well, Paul tells us at least four things will change. If you look at verse 42, he says, the perishable will be raised imperishable. That is, our bodies as currently constituted, you know this, they're subject to decay, to corruption, to breakdown. We're very finite. Time, space, death comes for all of us eventually. We may live slightly longer than our ancestors of 100 years ago, but we are perishable beings. We're perishable and we're perishing. And on the contrary, Paul says, when, we will be, when you are raised, you will be like Christ who is imperishable. Not just avoiding death, but imagine a sense of robustness, a vitality, a strength, that your knees and back, they're not just going to be like when you were 19, like they're going to be better than, you know, than when you were 19. Whereas now we decay and we die, we'll be raised to life, to strength evermore. Second, Paul says in verse 43, we die in dishonor, but are raised in glory. Now these words seem to reference outer beauty and outer functioning, that as we decay and die, our bodies humiliate us, they dishonor us. If we live long enough, we regress to the point uh, so that we actually need other people to care for us again. We no longer can do what we once did. 
And we return to a childlike state of dependence. And Paul says it will not be so in your resurrected body. You will be raised in glory. Now, I'm not sure that he means that we'll all be stunningly beautiful. I don't even know what, what that would mean exactly. But imagine a bride on her wedding day. It isn't just that uh, the bride is beautiful, you know, hair, skin, dress, like everything's sort of done. Brides aren't just beautiful, they're radiant. They like, they like glow. There's like some sort of light inside them. There's a, there's a robust joy to them. And this is the quality, Paul says, that will animate our resurrected bodies. Yes, your body will be fixed and better <clears throat> and maybe changed, but more importantly, you'll be radiantly joyful. Because everything that plagues you, everything that drags you down, all, all the sin, every, all of that gets shredded. Nothing impedes your joy. We die in dishonor, but we're raised in glory. Third, still in verse 43, Paul says, We are sown, which means we die in weakness, but we are raised in power. Now, weaknesses come in many forms, some of the physical we've already discussed, but we're also subject to mental weakness. As we age, the dimming of our minds, the loss of memories, the lack of sharpness that may have characterized our younger brains, we're all subject to weaknesses of addictions or desires for things that harm us. We're weak with desires to sin. We grow weak physically and mentally, spiritually. We go down to our deaths in weakness. But Paul says, we rise in power. We rise in power. We rise with remade minds, hearts, bodies, and wills, fully enabled to love God, fully enabled to love others robustly, our minds activated. I think you'll, you, know, you can finally read the Russian novelist and like, make it all the way through the whole book. You may die in weakness, but you'll be raised in power. Fourth, we are sown a natural body, but rise as spiritual bodies. Now notice Paul does not say we are buried physically, but rise spiritually. Both bodies are physical. Remember, Jesus is the pattern. And Jesus had a very physical, resurrected body. You're not going to be a spirit floating on a cloud if, if you, you and I will be physical beings. But he says, but in your body right now, you're like Adam. You're like a natural being. You follow the desires of your heart. Now you also, if you're a Christian, you also have the Spirit of God helping you in your weakness. But all of life now in our natural selves is a battle between the natures, between the desires, between the spirits. And we don't arrive. We don't, we don't ever finish. We go down to our deaths in our natural bodies. But our resurrected bodies will be known by the constant power of the Spirit. Imagine you didn't get in the way of God working. Imagine you could be a person fully set on God's mind and heart. Imagine loving your neighbor as yourself always. What a joy that would be. In our resurrected bodies, we won't be less than physical, friends. We will be more. Now, have you heard the phrase, ashes to ashes, dust to dust? It comes from the Anglican Book of Prayer, and it's, their fun it's part of their funeral liturgy. And when you bury a body, when you commit it to the ground or wherever you, whatever you're doing, the minister pronounces these words, We therefore commit this body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And in this life, that makes complete sense. If you look at verse 48, that's what Paul was saying. We are people of dust. We live in the line of dust. We expect to become dust when we die. But that is not what all Christians, or that is not all Christians expect. We also look forward to bearing the image of the man of heaven. Paul says, and if I can give my own rough translation, he says, just as you now wear the clothes of the man of dust, 
One day you're going to put on the clothes of the man of heaven. And actually, if you read to the end of the funeral liturgy, the old Anglicans, they got it exactly right, because it goes like this, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life. My friends, the resurrection of Jesus means that our weak, tired, sinful, decaying bodies will be transformed, will bear his image, will put on his clothes on our Easter day, raised to power and glory and strength and vitality and radiance. Somehow I'll still be me, but I also might be the me I might have been had not age and sin in the world intervened, and so will you. You need not fear the world and the body to come, says Paul. It'll be better. C.S. Lewis, until we have faces. I couldn't do a whole sermon on the resurrection without quoting C.S. Lewis at, once, uh, at least one time, but he writes this, until we have faces. He says, death opens a door out of a dark little room that's all the life we have known to this point, into a great real place where the true sun shines and we shall meet. This is the hope of the resurrection, friends, not just back but better, not just raised, resurrected. That's what Jesus did, that's who he is, and now that's what he's doing. But Paul then moves to another question, how will this happen or when will this happen? It's almost as if someone has piped up from the back of the room like, hey Paul, when do I get to change? When is this going to happen? Well, he says, if you look at verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. Behold means look. He says, look, look at me. I have something too deep for words. Mystery doesn't mean puzzle. It means something too profound to really explain. Paul says there's coming a day, and most of us will be dead, but not all of us. Remember, sleep is that code word for death in the Bible. Uh, not everyone will die, but in a moment we will be changed. As quick as a blink. As fast as a lightning strike, the trumpet will sound, the dead will rise, and we shall be transformed. Basically, Paul says, it's going to happen instantaneously. There will be a moment when everything will change in a rush. And not just us, but also the laws of nature and decay will reverse. The perishable will put on imperishability. The sting will be taken out of death. The poison and venom that death now has will be drained from it. You know, sometimes we read verses 54 and 55 at funerals, and that's fine. I mean, you can read whatever scripture you want at a funeral. Um, but the truth is that the death still has its sting. The reason you're gathered together at a funeral is because someone's been stung, because death has taken temporary victory over someone. The saying has not yet come to, pa to pass. Death has not been defanged, Paul says, but it will. Paul pictures death and resurrection in a very different way, maybe than most of us do. And if you want to kind of, kind of get in Paul's head or in the, in the Bible's worldview, you need to understand that death is not seen in the scriptures as, as crossing some finish line. You're not kind of like, you know, breaking the tape and, be, and being done. That's not how Paul pictures it. Paul pictures death and then resurrection more like a starter's pistol. He said, one day, the, you know, the crack will go off and you will begin a new transformed reality in the great real place where the sun shines. And it'll be that quick. One moment, you'll be in the starter's blocks, tensed, ready, and then in a split second, the gun will go off and everything will change. You're not going to have to worry about missing it. No one's going to miss it. <laughs> you'll know. Now, fourth and finally, the energy of the resurrection I know for some of you, for some of us, 
here's what happens. You hear about all this stuff about the future, and you're like, that's fine. <laughs> so, like, so what? Why does this matter for today? I still have to go to my dumb job, still have to be single, still have to be married, I still have to be stuck, I still have to be whatever. What does this future resurrection have to do with all of the things here and now? The resurrection doesn't always feel relevant. It may not feel as good as getting a really good tip on relationship advice or a really clever diet, but look at the last verse. Paul says, therefore. Therefore. What he means is, based on all of this, all of this resurrection talk, based on all of it, be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now this is tremendous. Paul says the resurrection of Jesus and our own resurrection, that should give us strength to abound in God's work, knowing that it's never fruitless. Excuse me. You know what vain means? It says your labor is not in vain. If you've been in our services for the last eight or eight weeks or so, we've been reading in Ecclesiastes, and the writer keeps using this word. (laughs) And he keeps saying, life is vain, and work is is vanity, and success is vanity, and getting old is vanity, and and giving inheritances to to foolish people is vanity. He says, all of it's vanity. And what he means by that, he says, it's it's breath. It's, it's It's a wisp. It's that curl of your breath on a cold winter morning. Anyone feel like what they're doing, it never lasts, never makes any difference? Anyone feel like parenting is is vain? You're not getting anywhere with your kids. None of your work, none of your labor to teach them life skills and the good news of Jesus is making any dent in their lives. Anyone feel like their work or their job is is vanity? It's accomplishing nothing. It, It sucks the life out of you. It's doing nothing good in the world or little good in the world. Any of you feel like your, your spiritual labor is vanity, that, that none of your neighbors and none of your friends care about Jesus and none of the Bible makes any sense and your prayers are all kind of limp? Anyone feel like helpless that, that the cultural and spiritual tides of the world are making your life vain? That no matter how hard you pray and no matter how hard your work, it's just this wisp of smoke and the wind comes along and blows it away. Anyone feel that? Martin Luther, the great German monk, he wrote this. When a father goes ahead and washes diapers or performs some other menial task for his child and someone ridicules him as an effeminate fool, God with all his angels is smiling. What Luther means by that is that because of the resurrection of Jesus, none of your good effort is wasted. None of it. None of it goes unseen. None of it goes, gets thrown out. Though may all the world may conspire against your work in the Lord and mine. Though the ground produce thistles and thorns and, and you accomplish very little by the sweat of your brow and there's great pain, it's not in vain. It's not. Though you think no one sees what I do and no one cares and my labor is unknown, it's not in vain, Paul says. I get to stand here and remind you that because Jesus is alive, like all of this matters. What you do in this life, whether you paint or or sing or sew or pray or teach or maybe you build homes or you dig wells 
or you work for justice, or you, you cash people out of the grocery store, or you, you care for the needy, or you change diapers. All these things, they last into God's future. It's not in vain. And that is what the resurrection means. And Paul says, don't give up. Don't give in. Stand. <laughs> you don't even need to make any progress. Just stay where you are. I would remind you, my friends, of the gospel. That Christ died, but he lives, and he's coming again. He's coming for you. He's coming, he's coming for us, and his resurrection changes our present and our future. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you have died, and you are alive again, and that changes everything. It changes the most uh, minute, the lowest minutia of our life, the smallest tasks and chores, and it changes the biggest things as well. That none of it's in vain. Give us resurrection strength, resurrection power this morning. May your spirit fill us and enable us to do all that we need to do in your kingdom. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.